Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hi, Andy. And today is a special episode. Yes, indeed. We have a distinguished guest today, uh, Professor Kermit Roosevelt. Hello, Professor Hi. Roosevelt. Hi. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So let me tell our audience a little bit about Professor Roosevelt. So he's at uh, the University of Pennsylvania Law School, where he is the David Berger Professor for the Administration of Justice. And this follows his, uh, uh, he's been there since 2002. Um, before that, he attended uh, Harvard University and then moved up to the Yale Law School. Um <laughs> Where he uh, he studied with Professor Amar, among others. Um, and That's called moving down, but anyway. Yes, that language was was not an accident. Um, uh, after law school, he he clerked for uh, Judge Stephen Williams on the D.C. Circuit, and then following that, he clerked for uh, the Supreme Court Justice, now retired David Souter, um, and uh, then on to Penn. So uh, at Penn, he's published widely. Uh, his major areas of uh, scholarly interest are conflicts of law and constitutional law. But he, he's published all over in Columbia Law Review, Virginia Law Review, M Michigan Law Review, and as well as uh, public outlets like uh, the New York Times, the Huffington Post, and I was interested to see Newsmax. Um, <laughs> He's also been cited by the Supreme Court on several occasions. He's written several novels. And of great interest today um, is his latest book, The Nation That Never Was, from the University of Chicago Press. So welcome to America's Constitution, Professor Roosevelt. Thank you so much. And if I could just jump in, I've known Professor Roosevelt, I call him Kim, you know, forever. And, and he knows this, but I want the world to know it. He's one of my favorite students of all time, one of my favorite people. And I'm not sure, Kim, we're going to agree on every single thing today, but I want the world to know just I'm so very proud of you and you're the best. Well, the feeling's mutual. Akhil, you've, you've always been incredibly kind and generous to me, and I'm always nothing but awed by your, your scholarship and your performances and discussions with people, the events that I've seen. So I come into this understanding that I think you're going to disagree with a bit of this and with a little bit of trepidation, but also I'm sure that you will be kind and fair. So happy to, happy to talk about anything. Or at least fair. <laughs> well, he's not always kind, but I think he will be kind to me. <laughs> yes. And, you know, we did, of course, as you can see, Professor Roosevelt is very... Andy, on the other hand, oh, just you wait. <laughs> no, not true. Not true. I know my, I know my place in this podcast. Um, but uh, as, you can, as you can hear, Professor Roosevelt is very distinguished. Um, it's, our, our audience is probably interested in his last name, so I won't uh, let it go completely by. Um, his uh, grandfather, um, by the same name... Um, was the grandson of President Theodore Roosevelt and uh, himself played an important role in the United States foreign policy, I believe. Um, so anyway, so there is that lineage there. Okay, but speaking of lineage, um, I mentioned that you studied under Professor Amar, and, you know, in reading this book, The Nation That Never Was, you know, Akil recommended it to me because he noticed that his name appeared a few times. So therefore, it must be, you know, <laughs> worth worth my reading. Um, and and I did see, you know, a number of areas where, you know, you sort of cite Akil with approval on 
questions like the geostrategical imperative that uh, lay at the heart of the American founding or the founding of the Constitution, at least, um, the relative unimportance of Federalist 10 um, at the founding, and uh, the malignant nature of the three-fifths clause. Those were some, some areas where there's you know, profound agreement, I would say, between the two of you. But given that you've studied with him, do you see places where you think that there's some space between the two of you in, uh, in your discussions in this book? Well, so I think there's probably some space in terms of the general thrust of my project, which is to try to turn our focus away from the founding and towards reconstruction. Um, and, you know, I have to wait to hear what Akhil thinks about that. I mean, I, I do think that Akhil probably agrees with a bunch of the things that I say in this book, because a lot of it really comes from him. A lot of the way that I think about the Constitution, the way that I think about its change over time, the way that I think about the relationship between the founding and Reconstruction really does um, come from him. Now, I think I probably go farther than he would want to go on some of these things. Kim, I think that's very, very fair. Um, we had Gordon Wood on in an earlier episode in certain ways. I kind of, he broke with beard in certain ways, but I said, oh, I'm going further than you. I'm breaking more. But what you just said, um, just for the benefit of our audience, maybe, um, let me just, I agree with you. We need to recenter American constitutional law and pay a lot more attention to the reconstruction than our standard narrative does. Let me just read to the audience, because that is actually not so much space between us, but agreement, even though I think you go a little further in certain respects, which, of course, we're going to talk about. But here's how I end a book that I wrote. My, my first real book that was composed as a book, as opposed to just a series of articles slapped together, it's called The Bill of Rights, Creation and Reconstruction. And there are two parts of the book. Part one is creation. Part two is reconstruction. And my model was kind of like Old Testament, New Testament. And if you're a Christian, I happen to be, the New Testament's actually rather important. It's, it's, it's not just the Old Testament. It's not just Yahweh. It's um, Abba, Father. So here are the last two paragraphs, or the last paragraph, really, of the book. What, in the end, are we to make of the pervasive ways in which our stock stories have exaggerated the creation and diminished the Reconstruction? If this book is right, then many of us are guilty of a kind of curiously selective ancestor worship, one that gives too much credit to James Madison and not enough to John Bingham, that celebrates Thomas Jefferson and Patrick Henry, but slights Harriet Beecher Stowe and Frederick Douglass. Great as men like Madison and Jefferson were, they lived and died as slaveholders, and their Bill of Rights was tainted by its quiet complicity with the original sin of slavery. Even as we celebrate the founders, we must ponder the sobering words of Charles Coatsworth Pinckney in the 1788 South Carolina Ratifying Convention. This is a quote from him. Another reason weighed particularly with the members of this state, that is South Carolina, against the insertion of a Bill of Rights. Such bills generally begin by with, with declaring that all men are by nature free. Now, we should make that declaration with a very bad grace. And a large part of our property consists in men who are actually born slaves, unquote. And then here's my final line. But the Reconstruction Amendment did begin with an affirmation of the freedom and citizenship of all. Those who birthed it renounced the slave power and all its works. These midwives were women alongside men, blacks alongside whites. 
After their mighty labors, more work did remain to be done. More work always remains to be done if all are to be free and equal. But because of these men and women, our Bill of Rights was reborn. So that was my idea. You're hearing Lincolnian strains, new birth of liberty. I think my my tone is a little bit more triumphalist and onward and upward, Whiggish than than Kim at certain points. But I actually think there is a lot of overlap, Kim. Yeah, I do too. And I mean, hearing you read that, so I I read that book when it came out. I loved it. It changed the way that I think about the Bill of Rights in terms of one, sort of its relative insignificance at the founding, which I think Gerard Magliocco also develops. And then two, most important, its federalism orientation, the extent to which uh, this body of constitutional provisions we now think of as individual rights were actually about protecting individual liberty by preserving state authority, I think super important. Um, So I read it when it came out. I, you know, I haven't looked at it lately and hearing you read that, I was like, wow, actually that influenced me more than I realized at the time, because what you're saying there is very, very much what I was trying to argue. Yeah, I think so. You know, and, and so, and we we may disagree on some things, but we're, 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 we are both trying to change the dominant narrative by at a minimum talking up the reconstruction. Yes. So, you know, I think as as I read it, I I certainly got that that you that you were trying to talk up the reconstruction, but I think there's perhaps a greater element of talking down the founding um, than one reads in in Akil's, uh, readings. So, you know, I I think that uh, you know you tell what you call the standard story, which is a a triumphalist story that locates American values in the Declaration of Independence the Revolutionary War, and the Constitution. And you, in fact, break up the founding into those three parts in your discussion, and then you include the Bill of Rights the, with the Constitution for the most part, um, or what you call the Founders' Constitution. Um, and you take you know, great issue uh, with the notion that the latter two, that is the Revolution and the Constitution, uh, provide a basis for believing that America is dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Um, you know, you're not alone. Yeah. You're not al- alone in that. And you, you have company, uh, for example, with the 1619 Project in saying that, although you, you criticize some of the statements in the 1619 pro- uh, Project. But, you know, in your book, you take on the Declaration of Independence as well. And it seems to me that you find, you, you know, no basis for that for the proposition that the de- the proposition that the Declaration dedicates the nation to this proposition. In fact, you you consider it not only I think deluded, but also quite hum- harmful, you know, to believe otherwise. So you're actually more critical of the founding than, than even the 1619 Project, and in some sense, I think you you kind of cast Lincoln aside here, although you bring him back later. But you 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 know you don't you think he's somehow dishonest in calling on the uh, declaration in this way? So, can you make the case for this argument? Um, yeah, well, so there are a lot of different points there, um, and I don't think that Lincoln is dishonest. You know, I've said, gosh, Lincoln is a complicated figure, and it's hard to, to be sure about what he believes based on what he says and what he does. Um, but the Lincoln scholars that I've talked to say he really believed that his reading of the Declaration was the correct one. And maybe there's some motivated reasoning there. Um, but, the, you know, they, they think that he meant it when he said all honor to Jefferson. 
So that's his idea, apparently. What I am saying is his understanding of the Declaration of Independence is not Thomas Jefferson's, and it's not the Continental Congress's understanding. And I really rely on Pauline Mayer for this. Um, Pauline Mayer's work on the Declaration of Independence, I think, is very good, and she has an article specifically directed to this question, what did all men are created equal mean in 1776, and how has its meaning changed over time? It's called The Strange History of All Men Are Created Equal. And the point that she makes there, you know, which I just sort of take and run with, and again, I go farther with it than she does, um, is that all men are created equal is understood then as basically a rebuttal to the divine right of kings derived basically from Enlightenment social contract theory, particularly John Locke's second treatise, and it would have been understood then as a statement about equality in the state of nature. And then there are natural rights theories that go in different directions from this, and you can make it um, critical of slavery. If you say all men are born and remain free and equal, then you've said something that is in conflict with slavery. Yeah. But if you just say created equal, you've chosen a formulation that is less offensive to people who are slaveholders. So what I'm saying is not that the idea of universal equality and sort of universal moral equality wasn't around then, because it was, and not that it wasn't in some documents, because it was. You know, Massachusetts has a constitution that says this. The French Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen says this. But it's not a necessary consequence of Locke's theory. You can have different versions of social contract theory. And what people are interested in, and I think that Akhil would agree with this, what people are interested in, what I'm saying is the main theme of the American story, if you look at the Declaration, if you look at the Constitution of 1787, really is unity. So we're trying to bring people together. And there are supporters and opponents of slavery drafting the Declaration. There are free states and slave states drafting the Constitution. Um, but it's important to get people together so you don't get an anti-slavery document in either instance. Yes. So, um, Andy, I think I do agree that some things are finessed. And I further agree that Jefferson and Virginians and South Carolinians may have a different understanding of, of some of these implications than, let's say, Adams in Massachusetts or Franklin in Pennsylvania. And at the beginning, I think they're trying to the Americans come together because they have to to uh, have a common military front against Britain, kind of join or die, as Franklin famously had it in a cartoon that itself changes meaning over time. Originally, it was join or die against the French. And now it's join or die, in effect, with the French, alongside the French against the, the Brits. I take to heart Kim's point that gee, different people might be reading this thing in somewhat different ways. Fair enough. But I do think, though, that um, a lot of this argument turns on the notion that it's Jefferson's declaration. In other words, this, this argument becomes important in your book because, you know, you say that the declaration does not embody you know, rights that, or, or a statement of right of equality. It doesn't embody a basic American credo that we should be proud of and can really build our whole country on. Um, that that comes out of more out of the Reconstruction, um, the Fourteenth Amendment in particular. You locate it there. So, if if indeed all men are created equal, just means no one is born to be king, and we're all created equal in that sense. 
um, which I think is one of the things you say. So if you think about what would it make sense to put in the declaration, the principle that all men are created equal, no one has a right to rule by birth, there's no such thing as the divine right of kings, very easy to see how that fits in the argument and why people approving the declaration would have approved that. If you think of it as a broad moral principle saying government should treat all people equally, or all people, even outsiders to the political community, deserve equal respect, it does no work in the argument for independence, which Lincoln even admitted. Um, and it's counterproductive because it suggests that the colonists are behaving illegitimately, that they are the oppressors, which is not what they wanted to say. What about so, the idea, Kim, of inalienable rights of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness? How do you think about that? It's not just that we're created equal, but we're endowed by our creator with certain inalienable rights, including liberty. Now, Virginia is going to tweak the language of the Declaration because it realizes, oh, that starts to sound as if, you know, if we're all created equal and there's an inalienable right to liberty, oh, what about slavery? And they change that language by talking about, oh, when you enter a social compact, and they, they do all sorts of hand-waving, but the Declaration doesn't quite say that. Right. So my my take on that, I mean, the, the way that I believe it was understood and the way that I think Jefferson was thinking when he wrote it, is that generally speaking, what Jefferson is trying to do is lay out broadly accepted principles of political philosophy that justify revolution. If the government has become destructive of its ends, uh, people can alter or abolish their form of government. And most of the time, he gives you social contract theory at a high enough level of generality that pretty much everyone agrees on it. You know, it could be Locke, it could be Hobbes, it could be Rousseau. It's all sort of the same thing. But there are particular moments where he needs to get more specific because Locke will support him and Hobbes won't. And inalienability is one of those moments because Hobbes says people start out in the state of nature and they have natural rights but they're not secure because other individuals might come along and take them away. This is where everyone is in agreement. And therefore, they form a society and they surrender their liberty irrevocably to the sovereign in exchange for protection. And thereafter, they cannot reassert that liberty because it's gone. And Locke has a different view, right? Locke says, no, you can't actually give your liberty away. This is the sort of right that cannot be disposed of or conveyed even voluntarily. And that's the technical legal meaning of inalienable. So we hear inalienable nowadays, and we think it means sacred or very important. But actually, I believe, the way it was understood then was this precise legal meaning. You cannot divest yourself of this right. And that's actually what the Virginia Declaration of Rights says in more detail. And I think that Jefferson was actually working from that in part. I think he was influenced by it. Now, here's where I think we, you and I start to diverge a little bit because, and Kim, I started working on this before I had read your new book, and I hadn't realized that this disagreement was going to be maybe a disagreement with you and have consequences. I've come to the view that it's a mistake to think that the Declaration is merely Jefferson's. And I think that for two reasons, or maybe three. One, because I actually think Jefferson's a mushhead. And he's actually hypocritical and inconsistent. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't live out his principles. So I actually am not sure he even knows. He just likes the sound of stuff. But further, I think for the reason you identified, 
There is a southern reading of the Declaration, but there's also a northern reading. And the northern reading is much, much closer to Lincoln's. And Lincoln isn't making it up in the 1860s. It goes all the way back to John Adams's Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 and to Ben Franklin's Constitution in mid-July 1776, both of which sound a lot like the Declaration, but a northern view of the Declaration that's going to be actually anti-slavery and Massachusetts and Pennsylvania from the beginning are abolishing slavery. And that's where I start to really move away from 1619 because I say, oh, part of America is pro-slavery, the South Carolinians, but part of America from the beginning is abolitionist and anti-slavery, and they're the first governments in the world to actually have slavery and then abolish it, People, places like Pennsylvania and um, Massachusetts. And, oh, those guys were on the same drafting committee as Jefferson. That's Ben Franklin. That's John Adams. So from day one, America isn't really an it. It's a they, and and they're moving in somewhat different directions from the beginning. And from the beginning, it is plausible to say all men are born equal or created equal. And that means certain inalienable rights, which means no one can be a slave. And that's the way in which Pennsylvania and Massachusetts start to understand this from day one. Now, the question is, what do you think about that? I, I'm not sure in your book you talk as much about the early state constitutions and especially the northern ones that are going to move in this direction based in part on Franklin and Adams, who are also both part of that triumvirate. So so it may make a really big difference whether we think of it as Jefferson's declaration or, you know, a more of a joint product, very much including Ben Franklin and John Adams. So before you answer that question, let me just read you a, a paragraph from your book. And I think that um, if you listen to this paragraph, it sounds very different if you if you take two different assumptions. You know, on on the one hand, if you assume, you know, the, that the um, that the Declaration is written by Jefferson and reflects his views, in and the rest of it is just style and you know and edit style points for the most part, um, then it sounds one way. On the on the other hand, if you look if you listen to this paragraph through the lens that Akil just outlined, that this let's say this is written by just for argument's sake. Jefferson, Adams, and Franklin, then I think this paragraph sounds very different depending on those two uh, perspectives. So here's what it says. The, um, this being Kim's book. Yes. Um, where Lincoln thought equality was the end of government, meaning its goal, we could say Jefferson, we, we could say, Jefferson thinks government is the end of equality, meaning its termination. The Virginia Declaration of Rights makes this point explicitly. It talks about people's natural rights and then about what happens to those rights, quote, when they enter into a state of society, unquote. This language was added by Edmund Pendleton to make it clear that freedom and equality were enjoyed by all men in the state of nature, not by enslaved people in the state of Virginia. The Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 had no such qualifier. It simply stated, all men are born free and equal. Okay. By the way, Kim, beautifully written. Um, Thank and you so much. Just really, really elegant. But if you think Adams is kind of there and Franklin is kind of there along with Jefferson, then it's not like there's one reading that's just the Jefferson reading that gets clarified by Pendleton in Virginia, but two from day one. 
So I, yeah, I think there, there are two readings from day one. Um, the question is sort of which is the mainstream reading and which is the dissenters reading. Um, and, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is offer people a way to look at the founding and find heroes that they can identify with. And I think people have trouble identifying with Jefferson, right? So one tack is to say, oh, look at Adams and Franklin instead, who are better, certainly. Another tack would be to say, actually, you don't have to look at the founding fathers at all because this view is coming in from the outside. So I think it's true that founding America is a they and not an it. And I think it's true that there are different readings that are there. Um, I tend to think that the phrasing matters a lot, and it matters that Massachusetts writes it differently from Virginia, because Virginia shows you how um, slave owners who are concerned about implications for slavery can write something that sounds very similar. They can take yes. a natural rights theory and emphasize that people are equal in a certain way in the state of nature, but they have different rights when they enter into society because your legal rights and your natural rights are not coextensive. And, and not here, everyone just is a member that, of this community. Kim, I'm sorry, on that, I agree with you. And in actually my most recent book, I call Virginia, final version, weasel words of a certain sort because it, it seems to give everything and, and then it takes it it all back. So, um, so, so far we're in a, a fair amount of agreement, but here's, I think, then where we disagree. Maybe, because Andy, Andy's not going to have... And he's not going to be happy if 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 it's just as this total love fest. They'll be more interested in the podcast if there's at least you know uh, some friction here. Here's what I emphasize that the 1619 folks don't, at least as I understand them, that it's not just words. From the beginning, half of America is moving dramatically in deeds toward abolition. We're actually getting the abolition of slavery based on those Massachusetts words in Massachusetts. And the abolition of slavery may be gradual, but still the abolition of slavery as a system in Pennsylvania, beginning you know, with those words. And, and not just those two jurisdictions, but um, New Hampshire and Vermont and uh, Connecticut and Rhode Island is going to come in and then New Jersey and New York and some other free soil jurisdictions in the Northwest Territory and elsewhere. And to me, especially when we look at these state constitutions, that's dramatic because these are the first abolitionist uh, deeds really in the world, the society that actually has slavery and is getting rid of it. And that seems to me important and it's not all of america it's 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 half of america and but an important half located not in the 1860s but in the 1770s and 80s and 90s yeah so i i think that's true i appreciate that there were emancipations of individuals in the old testament new testament ben-hur for example but we really don't have at least that i know of examples of jurisdictions that actually kind of pass laws in dramatic ways saying no slavery ever, you know, henceforth. And what I read in my sources was the world's first abolition society was 
in your hometown of Philadelphia in 1775. And these are the first, at least they say in the modern era or something, you know, abolitionist laws that we see. Britain hasn't done this yet for its, let's say, West Indian possessions. And it's not going to do that until 1833. But well before that, Fully half the states have actually abolished slavery, which had existed in, in many of these places. And now they're saying it can't anymore. And I thought, wow, that's interesting and dramatic. And, and Lincoln picks up on this and emphasizes uh, this in, in some of his narrative. It, it matters that they're cite, that the, for the purposes of reading your book, that, it, that they're referencing the Declaration when they're doing this. In other words, that this is a, a credo. You know that that they that they so to say that the declaration does not contain, you know, uh, a credo that we you know that we can look to that embodies our American ideals and that, that over time we uh, you know, we may live by them better. Um, you say that you really can't do that. You can do it after Reconstruction, and but what we just outlined is an America in the antebellum period where there are good guys and bad guys, right? And the good guys are using the, the words of the Declaration in, to accomplish positive things, and the bad guys aren't. That's exactly what you say is happening after Reconstruction. So I, I'm not sure that uh, towards the end of your book, you know, you make some comments like that. So it seems to me that's a fairly parallel narrative. I'm not sure I would reject, um, you know, you know, I think if you look at the Reconstruction as another step, you know, along the way. Now, of course, what the difference is that you have some the failure of the Founders' Constitution in part because of because of the war. Um, whereas, but on the other hand, to some degree, there's a failure of Reconstruction with Redemption. So I'm I'm not sure that this oh, yeah. this sharp distinction, you know, uh, you know, holds up to that analysis entirely. But Andy, I'm going to defend Kim on one thing, and then obviously Kim gets to come back in. But Kim is not just a scholar of constitutional law, and he's a preeminent scholar of constitutional law. He's a scholar of conflicts of law. And conflicts of law is a part about how different jurisdictions do things differently. I'm actually, Kim, trying to tell a conflicts of law story about how on day one, okay. 1776, South is doing it one way, and the North is beginning to do it a different way. And actually, at least in legal theory, after Reconstruction, there's no more conflict there. You know, there after the 13th Amendment, formally, juridically, you know, it's abolition everywhere or something like that. So Reconstruction takes the they of, of, of different jurisdictions, uh, free soil and, and slave soil, and now comes up with a unified it, which is all America is supposed to be free soil. Your thoughts? Okay, so many thoughts. Um, so first, going back to the, like, the different readings of the Declaration, where I was like, yes, these different readings are around from the beginning. The question is sort of which is central. Um, and in terms of the anti-slavery reading of the Declaration, I think it's powerful evidence that the Continental Congress took out Jefferson's passage attacking King George for the international slave trade, right, which suggests they didn't want an anti-slavery declaration. And it's important evidence that the preamble was not considered very important and was not celebrated until the 1820s or so when it was picked up by abolitionists. So there are good guys and bad guys in antebellum America, both appealing to the Declaration 
in part, and people are fighting over its meaning, and there are good guys who assign it the Bonner meaning. Um, so can you do that? Yes, you can do it, and they did it successfully. And the modern reading of the Declaration triumphed to a degree that I think it probably shouldn't have. But my question is not so much, can you do that? Because you can read texts creatively and reinterpret them and imbue them with different meanings. Of course you could do that. You know, we've seen it done. My question is, should we keep on doing that or do we have better resources now? So for Abraham Lincoln in 1863 saying, I'm fighting for equality, the Declaration supports me, makes perfect sense. For Martin Luther King, talking in 1963 and saying the Declaration supports me in my fight for equality, why not the Reconstruction Amendments? Why does he talk about the founding? So I think that's an important question that I, that I want to get to. Um, about slavery, so like, I guess I would have to look at my sources too, and you know, I, I thought this was pretty clear, so I haven't actually devoted that much time to it, but my understanding was there was slavery in Western Europe, and it was abolished. And it was abolished in part on the grounds that men are by nature free and equal. It was abolished by royal proclamation, I guess, because those were monarchies. But I, I do think slavery existed and it was abolished. And then African race-based slavery comes in in the United States. And that's a different phenomenon. And it has a different history of abolition. Um, but I think that like the practice of Europeans enslaving other Europeans existed and then, and then was abolished. And then the last thing, conflict of laws. So here's a conflict of laws perspective that sort of leads into my big point, which is that we should understand Reconstruction and the founding as more in opposition than we do, like greater tension. So both the original Constitution and the 14th Amendment, I think, are concerned to overrule a conflict of laws decision. So there's a case that's not mentioned by name in either instance, but there's a case that's being overruled in the 1787 Constitution with the Fugitive Slave Clause, it's Somerset. There's a case that's being overruled in the 14th Amendment in 1868, it's Dred Scott. And those are polar opposites. So what the Constitution is doing there is sort of pointing in different directions. I agree with that. Kim, let's um, elaborate a little bit of that for our audience, Somerset and, and, and Dred Scott. Um, and then after you elaborate a little bit more and tell them what Somerset is and, you know, and how the Fugitive Slaves Clause changes that in the pro-slavery direction and Dred Scott, then I'll, I'll jump in afterward and tell you why I think Dred Scott was actually a misinterpretation, at least in certain respects, of the original Constitution. Not necessarily in the technical choice of law question. You know what I mean, but our, you'll explain that to our audience. And then there, one other disagreement I think we might have is I think you're too nice to the Brits. And I am I'm skeptical of the Brits, truthfully. And maybe that's because of my own family history and the Brits were not very good to, to people in India when my parents were born and all, all the rest. And I'd also both, I think Andy and I, when we were uh, preparing for this, were interested in where you think 16, the 1619 Project gets it right and where you think the 1619 Project gets it wrong. Yeah, so the Somerset decision um, is a 1772 decision written by Lord's Man Lord Mansfield, and what it does is it says an enslaved person who escapes in England is free. Um, so the question is, what's the status of enslaved people who enter English territory, who breathe English air, whose feet touch English soil? 
And what Lord Mansfield said is slavery is contrary to natural law, so it can't exist without positive legal authorization. There is no authorization under the laws enacted by Parliament for slavery in England. Therefore, the state of slavery does not exist here. So enslaved people who come to England by whatever means are free. Um, this is a rule, obviously, that is unappealing to the slave states in America. Um, not such a great threat to them because it's hard to get to England. But if you had a similar rule in the interstate context in the United States, so as soon as your feet touch free soil, you're free, that would be very damaging to the interests of people who are trying to protect slavery. So the 1787 Constitution overrules Somerset, you could say, by providing in the Fugitive Slave Clause that if a person escapes from slavery and travels to a free state, they do not thereby acquire freedom. Instead, they must be returned. Um, and Akil has actually some great things to say about this and how it compares to the Interstate Extradition Clause, which if you wanted to put a, a better spin on it, you could do. Um, but the point that I make about this is if you're asking whether the 1787 Constitution is pro-slavery, the really difficult question is, well, what's our baseline compared right. to what? And with respect to the Fugitive Slave Clause, I would say, you know, international law is the appropriate baseline. What's the rule in the absence of the Constitution? And the rule is if a person enters the territory of state A, maybe it's Illinois, um, Illinois gets to say what their status is. So from the baseline of international law, the Fugitive Slave Clause deprives states of their authority. It's an anti-states rights provision, and it does so in a pro-slavery direction. So that was to me like I, a pretty unambiguously pro-slavery provision. I agree with all that. Now, note for the audience, Andy, we're moving from the Declaration of 1776. Now we're starting to talk about the Constitution in 1787, and I'm saying, let's not forget in between the state constitutions, many of which are abolitionist, and I think as an important part of the story that I, uh, that 1619 doesn't talk about at all that I, I want to highlight. The abolition state by state in places like Pennsylvania and uh, Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts and, and, and others. But him and I agree that certain aspects, I, I'm saying, I think the Declaration can be read different ways, but there's a liberationist reading that really has legs, that has real immediate consequence, not just words in state constitutions from day one north of the Mason-Dixon line. And that's important. But now the Constitution, that's a different thing. And it's pro-slavery in certain ways. Uh, they're gonna be, we haven't talked about the three-fifths clause, but the Fugitive Slave Clause is actually kind of disgraceful. It's a real step back because... If Kim and I are saying there's actually a conflict of laws in 1785 between Pennsylvania, which is free soil, and Virginia, which is slave soil, or South Carolina, conflict of laws between Massachusetts, which is free soil, you know, and the Carolinas, which aren't, um, and there's a conflict before you, because before you go on there, just for our audience, the reason when you say conflict of laws, I, I think what you mean is that. Um, you know, the, the, the individual who's standing there on the soil in Massachusetts could say, okay, I'm free because I'm covered by the law of Massachusetts. Correct. And Virginia could say, no, you're not because you're from Virginia and, you, and you're covered by that. So there's a conflict. So you have to decide who wins. Just so. You stated it beautifully. You know, and, and, but that conflict, Akil says, 
is created because there are free soil jurisdictions, which there weren't actually um, before the American Revolution. And that's progress. That's it's a they, not an it. So now we actually have a conflict of laws issue. And I agree with Kim that the Constitution resolves that and resolves that pro-slavery and disgracefully, actually, against the backdrop of what the international law rule would be, which is, to borrow Latin phrase, lex loci, the law of the place. When in Rome, you do as the Romans. Once you reach Massachusetts, it's Massachusetts law that applies. What happens in Vegas, you know, is, is governed by Vegas rules. I, I'm told I, I haven't spent lots of time doing Vegas stuff. The baseline, Kim, of course, knows that that's not always the conflict of law rule. Somerset's case would have said, if you reach free soil, then... For in certain respects, at least you're, you're, as it were, home free. And the Fugitive Slave Clause changes that disgracefully in a pro-slavery. It's in part because we are having free soil jurisdictions, which we didn't have before the American Revolution. And I'm saying in part inspired by a certain Franklin Adams reading of the Declaration. The Constitution is disgraceful, right. but the state experience is actually have some reasons for for optimism because there there are at least three different things we're talking about the declaration's text which can be read different ways the state constitutional experience which is different in in different places and now the u.s constitution coming along three different things and i think all this matters for kim's book because in a sense you know he he it seems to me correct me if i'm wrong uh, Professor Roosevelt, sorry, I'm getting <laughs> Akil's enlisting me in the in the familiar here, um, but uh, it, in a way, your your book is not so much about the Declaration or the Constitution or the or or the Revolutionary War, but rather the founding, you know, a, as a whole versus the Reconstruction. In terms of, is this a time where we can be proud, where we can draw uh, inspiration? Where we can find, where we can locate what is America. Okay, what I was going to say before was just that uh, your point about the fugitive slave law. I think you can. It's a bad reflection on the Constitution, but it reflects on the country as a whole um, in a different way. And that happens again in 1850 um, when it's changed. You know, in the, uh, and you see, and now the local per- per people in. Massachusetts are enlisted in the capture and return of slaves and the revulsion that, you know, that comes out shows that the people do not necessarily, you know, buy into this entirely. So they're, they're not all irredeemable racists is the point. Yes. Well, so I am certainly not saying that at any moment in American history, all Americans are irredeemable racists. And I don't think the 1619 Project says that either. So to, to pick up on like the what does 1619 get right and wrong, I think 1619 gets a lot right. I think 1619 is right to point to the ways in which the legacy of slavery influences American life today in ways you might not think. Like it explains traffic patterns in Atlanta. It explains a lot of things that we don't normally associate with slavery. I think that's a powerful and important claim. Um, I think that 1619 is probably mostly right about Somerset. I think they pushed it a little bit more than they should have at the beginning. But if you look at the academic consensus, you know, to the extent that I've been able to figure out what that is, uh, professional historians seem to agree 
that Somerset was viewed with alarm by slaveholders, and then they reacted sort of differently. So in the West Indies, where they're not thinking about independence, they protest fairly vigorously. In the colonies, they do so less, and you can look at coverage in the Patriot versus Tory papers, and it looks as though what's going on is there's a general movement towards independence, and people are presenting the the decision in ways that they think are more likely to promote the cause of independence. And part of that is slavery, like defense slavery, is not going to be our rallying cry. That's not you know, what we want the revolution to be understood as. Um, but in other cases, like part of that is we want to make Southern slave owners afraid that the British are going to emancipate their slaves because we think that will spur them towards revolution. So there's a lot of different sort of cross-cutting currents going on there. But overall, I don't think that 1619 is dramatically wrong in its account of Somerset and the influence that that had on at least some people. Um, I think it's also pretty clear that if you look at the revolution and you ask, is one of these sides fighting for slavery? The answer is neither side is fighting for abolition. Um, but the British are emancipating slaves where it's convenient to them, and they're dressing them in uniforms with sashes that say liberty to slaves. Um, and the patriots are complaining about that. So, you know, one way to look at, um, you know, one way to sort of try to reduce founding America to an it, if you, if you have to, is to look at the moments where the colonies speak with one voice. And the Declaration of Independence, with its complaints about domestic insurrections, is one of those. And the Treaty of Paris, with its demand for the return of people that the patriots enslaved and the British freed, is another. Um, I don't take 1619 to say that America is irremedi irremediably racist. I think it's got specific language about the possibility of redemption and what needs to be done and how important it is to see the past clearly so that we can move forward. Um, where I disagree with 1619 really is actually like the reading of the Declaration of Independence. So they take, Nicole Hannah-Jones in the introductory essay, takes what I call the modern reading, the standard story, which is to take all men are created equal as this broad moral principle about how the government should treat all people, and then say our ideals were false when they were written, but we've struggled to make them true, which is basically the standard story. Um, you know, that's, that's what people say. That's what even the triumphalist story sort of tells, because you have to admit that slavery existed in 1776. Um, and then, you know, honestly, like the way that 1619 differs mostly is that when it tells the story about fighting to make those ideals a reality, it gives a lot more space to black people who did that. Um, and it's very disturbing to me that some people look at what is basically a retelling of our standard narrative just with more black heroes and say, that's anti-American, that's an attack on the very idea of America. Because it's not. I mean, I, I think of the 1619 Project as deeply and conventionally patriotic. So here's where I have my biggest problem with the 1619 Project. I don't think the Brits are great at all. And I say the Brits are n never better than the Americans, and sometimes they're actually worse Freeing some individual slaves is really different than abolishing slavery. And when we're talking about 1776 or 1786 or 1796, the people, or 1806, the people who are abolishing slavery are the Americans and they're not the Brits. That's one point. 
Second point, and maybe I feel this because I know what the Brits did to my family, you know, in lived experience, you know, hearing my stories of my from my dad about um, what the Brits were doing in India when he when he was growing up. I also think the Brits are not nicer. You have more, I think, guilt Kim, than I do about the um, Americans and the native indigenous peoples. We haven't talked about that yet in that I think the Brits uh, actually use indigenous peoples um, in beastly ways. They they make all sorts of promises. They get them to fight wars against um, the American colonists, and then they abandon them, and they play divide and conquer against the tribes. So one thing that I don't love about, and they, they do that in India, and, you know, and they, and they do that throughout the world. So what I don't love in part about 1619 is suggesting that the Brits were better than the Americans because in general, I don't think they were. There's some technical issues. Maybe we don't want to go into great detail about Dunmore's proclamation. My own view is that's a consequence of a war already underway rather than a cause of actually um, the American Revolution. And, and I think 1619 gets that wrong and building on a sentence from Jill Lepore that I think gets deeply wrong, you know, what precipitates the American Revolution, because it begins up in Boston. And up in Boston, it's not about slavery, you you see, because America isn't an it, it's a they, and and the stuff begins in Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. And these are the places that are actually going to get rid of slavery. And people like James Otis are talking about getting rid of slavery in 1764. He's criticizing slavery in a famous pamphlet. That's my critique. I, I love the fact a project would be talking about Black experience, black agency, black actors in American history. But I think they're too nice to the Brits and missing the fact that Americans are actually and these are white Americans, some of them. And and for moralistic reasons, the, the Ben Franklins of the world actually doing abolition on the ground. And and I can show you the statutes and you say, oh, there's this stuff in the 1500s. I said, gee, I never heard of that. And, and it might have been done by a royal proclamation or something. Oh, but there's feudalism and unfreedom of various sorts. There's, these guys are not committing themselves in Europe to everyone being created equal. They still believe, you know, in some of these places in all sorts of, you know, some people are born nobles and some people are born serfs and, and some people are dukes born dukes and earls and all this crap, okay, whereas in America, beginning in 1775 and 1776, I can show you jurisdiction after jurisdiction that are really abolishing slavery and committing themselves to a modern Lincoln-like equal birth idea. And that's pretty exciting to me. It is exciting. I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely true. American states, I would say, are both better and worse than the British. Yes. So some of them are better. Yes. And some of them are worse. Yes, because we're a they and not an it. Yeah. But the 1619 project I didn't see was talking about the places that were better and talking about how sometimes the places that were better were actually white people who are motivated by moral principle rather than just people who have kind of sordid, self-interested motivation. Some of these folks, the Quakers in your home, you know, hometown are actually just kind of principled people, it seems to me, and, and God bless them. And some of the, you know, the, the Puritan descendants up in Boston, some, you spent a lot of, you know, this is, I'm preaching to you, but you spent a lot of your life in Boston area and, and, and in Philadelphia. You went to college at, at some place I, I heard of in, in, in Cambridge and, and you live in Philly. Yeah. So the Quakers are great. Um, you know, and Massachusetts is pretty good. Um, and the, the question, 
that I would sort of yeah, those Dutch is, in New York, not so much. But <laughs> <laughs> no, the question I'm asking is that the revolution? Is that the founding? Because it's not the 1787 Constitution. Is it the 1776 Declaration? Um, it's, it's one it's an understanding it's, it's, that emerges. It's, it's one part of it because it's a they and not an it. Right. So I I, I agree with you on that. Well, then um, how do you, but I, to go back yeah. to a question that Andrew asked, which is like, can we be proud of the founding? Um, I'm not saying that there's nothing to be proud of in the founding. Um, I'm saying that we have better resources. So you can look at the Declaration of Independence um, and find good things in it. But then you also have to look at that part about inciting domestic insurrections. And you have to look at the part about merciless savages. Um, whereas if you look at the Gettysburg Address instead, that looks a lot better. So one way that I think about this book or that I've come to think about this book is we're having this sort of national identity crisis because we want to tell a story about our past that is accurate because, of course, we have to be honest. But we want to tell a story that's also inspiring. And what we're finding nowadays is that people are less willing to gloss over unpleasant aspects of the founding, and they're less willing to compromise. They're less willing to say, oh, you know, nothing better was possible at the time, which I think is actually true, you know, for a lot of it. The 1787 Constitution, I think it's pro-slavery. I don't think you could have done much better, except maybe, as you suggested, Akil, a descending staircase approach to the Three-Fifths Compromise. Phase, phase stuff but, out, okay? Um, in 1808, not only you phase out the international slave trade, not just permissibly, but required. You phase out the three-fifths clause. You phase out slavery in the West. You phase out the fugitive slave clause. Yes, I think we should have tried to phase everything out. And that was not, um, I'm not proposing that they use the internet, okay? That was, I'm, I'm, I'm proposing that they actually use a, a, a device that they, of course, were aware of because the 1808 clause, when it comes to the international slave trade, is already in the document. I'm just saying they should have used it more pervasively. And states like your home jurisdiction of Pennsylvania are phasing out slavery itself, you know, with what you just called the descending staircase. And this is going to be Lincoln's idea of, of putting slavery itself nationally on a path of ultimate extinction, just kind of gradually. And I'm saying they, the best states were doing stuff like that. Pennsylvania, New York, Connecticut, Rhode Island, maybe not immediately, but phasing stuff out. That's right. what they should have done and didn't. And I fault them for that. Yes. And that's how founding America could have survived. And then it wouldn't have needed to be destroyed the way right. I believe it was destroyed. I mean, right. It we'll, failed. We'll get to that. Yeah. The Civil War is not a success. And it's an epic failure of their core purpose, which is, you know, not to kill each other. Yeah. 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 But that would have... I, I, I have to speak up since it's not a matter of law. I'm able to chime in. Um, I think Andy is always nervous when we're, you know, we have too much of a love fest because he, he, he wants us to, to. No, no, I'm serious. I'm joking. Yeah, I, I believe that it's it's a lot to ask um, of the uh, of the founding to convince the South to put slavery on the path of eventual extinction at the time, you know, in numbers. Um, and the reason that I say that is because you could do it in the North because they wanted to, because it, it wasn't, you know, something that was um, part of their, you know, for lack of a better word, self-image, right? But in the South, what you're doing when you do that is you're telling them that slavery is wrong and you have to admit that it is wrong, 
which they were unwilling to do. Um, the South Carolinians, but not right. actually quite not the Virginians, right? The not deep the, Southerners, mm-hmm. and but it is wrong. Of course, know? it's wrong. And, and there were people at the time who knew it. The Quakers yes. know it. The Puritans know it. And they act yeah. accordingly. But but in other in other words, to reach an agreement with the crazy nuts in South Carolina and the few the the ten, the ten people that lived in Georgia, um, you you would have had you would have had to get them to admit that they yeah. were evil. You know, the, and, the, and they would not have done that. I mean, and you can see, I think, um, certainly they wouldn't do it later. Um, and and you, you, can cert- you can certainly see that. So that's, that's why I think it sounds very nice. You put it on the path, you know, these numbers. Because economically, yes, you can make the argument. It's not going to be them. It'll be their grandchildren, you know, and, and they have plenty of time to, to see that it's coming, to transition to an industrial economy or whatever. You can make a, a practical argument, but I don't think you can make a psychological argument. And given how crazy they are, you know, in their, in their words and their deeds, I think – so that's that's my point on that. And that's why I think the Virginians are the most interesting. My analogy is they're like lifelong smokers who would like to quit but have difficulty because they're addicted, but don't really want their grandkids to start smoking. And and I think it was even possible that since we're you know the Thomas Jeffersons of the world know this is wrong. They um they're not like the John C. Calhouns who say, oh, slavery is a is is hunky dory and a positive good. And we're talking about alternative universes that avoid a civil war or something. If Virginia had phased out slavery in the 1820s or 1830s, maybe and these that's there are a lot of slaves in Virginia, and it's a different kind of slavery than South Carolinian slavery. That might have actually put America on a different path, which is why I'm harshly critical of Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. They were actually the key actors. Now, I don't want to embarrass Kim, but here's what we're talking about, because he's talking about the story we tell ourselves, you know, our national narrative. We're talking about Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore is complicated when it comes from a Native American perspective. I'm going to talk about that in the book. This is, the, this is a sacred spot in the in the Black Hills. So, but bracket that for just a moment, okay? Kim and I are both saying, "Ooh, Jefferson is not quite the hero that so many Americans have been taught." We're agreeing on that. I think Kim and I both are are pretty admiring of of Lincoln. We haven't quite talked um, as much about Washington who is a Virginian, who isn't perfect, but at least he ends his life by freeing his slaves. And I give him points for that. And Jefferson doesn't do that. And Madison doesn't do that. And of course, the fourth guy up there, Kim, has, I bet, a a somewhat complicated relationship to, we haven't quite talked about uh, Teddy Roosevelt yet, but but before the end of this conversation, I'd love your thoughts, Kim, on Mount Rushmore, because partly that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the national narrative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it is totally about the national narrative. And that's that's the point that I was sort of trying to make before, where I was saying, my argument is not, I want you to think badly of the founders. Um, my argument is, we're already at a moment where lots of Americans have difficulty seeing themselves in the founding and have difficulty identifying with the founders. Um, you know, maybe it's not as bad with John Adams as it is with Thomas Jefferson, but there are problems. People feel disconnected from the founding. And that's bad for us as a nation, because we don't want to teach our school children that America is a bad country, right? We don't want to teach them to hate America. That's a terrible thing, right? No one wants to do that. 
So then the question is, is there a solution? Can we tell a story about America that is both accurate and inspiring? And my solution is reconstruction is our founding, and it's a much better moment, and the Civil War is a better war than the Revolution, and the Gettysburg Address is better than the Declaration of Independence, and the Reconstruction Constitution is better than the original Constitution. Um, now, the problem with that, if I'm like, here's our story, it starts in 1863. The problem with that is you can't just jump into the middle and be like, well, I don't care about the earlier stuff. This is where it gets good. Um, you can't if there's a real continuity there. So if it turns out that we're the same nation we've always been, you can't just start the story at a convenient moment. And what I'm trying to do, and I am sort of pushing this idea, is the idea that Reconstruction is a break. Reconstruction is not a fulfillment of founding ideals as much as a repudiation of them. And you can kind of see this, I think, pretty clearly with the Declaration of Independence in the sense that the Civil War is a rejection of independence. Um, you know, and there's also this other reading of the Declaration, and people are dispute which side is fighting for it. But, you know, the southern states thought that they were the true heirs of 1776. And as the war went on, they got less enthusiastic about that idea because they wanted to distinguish themselves more from the hated Yankees. But in the beginning, the South is very much saying that we believe in the Declaration, we are enacting the Declaration. Um, and if you think about it that way, you can say, I identify with the union, right? I identify with the national government that fought a war against slavery. And that puts me against the South, which is why we haven't been saying this, I think, because it's divisive. Mm -hmm. um, but you can say that. You can say that puts me against the South. And maybe it puts me against the original declaration, too, right? I don't believe in the right to revolution anymore. Uh, what I do believe in is a new birth of freedom. You know, I believe in democracy. I believe in government of the people, by the people, for the people. And Akhil, I owe it to you, the insight that the Declaration is not democratic, right? Because it you can have... A vote. Well, but also it doesn't, it doesn't endorse democracy. It doesn't set out democracy as a required criterion of a legitimate government, right? And protection of natural rights. And if it did, oh, that's not going to go over so well in France under uh, Louis, and you need his money and his military. So, yeah, if you understand that the purpose of the Declaration is to unite all of America and therefore finesse certain issues because we're a they and not an it, unite us and make an overture to especially the French to support us, if you if if you write a document saying the only legitimate government is actually a democracy, well, good luck because they're not for me. So maybe Switzerland, you know, which doesn't have any, and that's about it in the world. There's Britain, but they they're, they're, you're fighting them. There's the Dutch that are in the process of losing whatever self government has. That's it. So no, of course the Declaration isn't going to sing the song that of of that the only legitimate governments are democracies, because that's not going to help you so much uh, get French support, which you need. Absolutely, Kim. You know, I think the, uh, the promotion of the virtues of Reconstruction, you know, as a shining moment in American history is, is first of all, I think it's a true story. And second of all, I think it's a, it's a you know, uplifting story. But I don't think that it requires um, us to find our, our origin there. And I would say that the heroes of Reconstruction, they also celebrated, that you, that you list in your book, they also celebrated the Declaration. 
So if they if they're go, if you know the heroes of our heroic moment are celebrating the declaration, I don't see why 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 we wouldn't be be well served in doing that. Also, they see a continuity there. There are discontinuities as well, but there is also a continuity. And of course, you know, number one on the list is is Anastabe, even though he's you know not present you know, at the reconstruction physically, but his vision is. Just yeah. to sharpen that point, Kim, so you can respond to the, you know, the, the hardest version of it. You not only mentioned Lincoln several times, and, you know, we're Lincoln men, and, and so is the great jurist for whom you clerked, David Souter, you know, whom I hold in the highest regard. But you mentioned in particular the Gettysburg Address. You said 1863. Now, of course, very famously, the first sentence of that is an invocation of just the phrase that we've been talking about, you know, all men are created equal. I would say Lincoln isn't misreading the phrase. I'm saying he's reading it through a Franklin Adams born equal lens, you know, a northern lens uh, supported by a whole bunch of northern constitutions that actually say stuff like born equal without this social compact Weasley exception or something. So he's reading the declaration, not in a crazy way. It's just not the, it's not the only way you could read it, but it really is a defensible, plausible reading. It's the northern reading of the declaration traveling more through Adams and Charles Francis Adams is going to be his guy ambassador of the court of St. James and kind of Ben Franklin. So I would say the one false step that he makes, well, two, um, of course, he's not a pure historian. He's trying to make it happen. And, you know, he's trying to persuade others. And so we can't judge him as if he were, you know, an academic historian, but I do think he probably you know, actually think this is Jefferson. I don't think it is. He says all honor to Jefferson. Now, politically, this is a shrewd move. He's trying to steal, you know, some of Jefferson's coalition, you know, in the same way that Ronald Reagan said nice things about FDR, you know, the uh, the other Roosevelt. So he's not actually completely making it up at Gettysburg when he's building on a certain reading of the declaration that that would be the sharp you know way of, of of sharpening Andy's point that you want him to be up there not just him alone people like Frederick Douglass uh, we haven't talked about women but Harriet Beecher Stowe or many others the Grimke sisters and Lucretia Mott lots of lots of folks Lucy Stone other abolitionists if we're going to focus on Lincoln and you are a Lincoln man Lincoln himself is invoking the declaration is a- Andy's point at Gettysburg. Yeah, so Lincoln absolutely is invoking the Declaration. Yes. And he's not making it up, right? He's drawing on a reading of the Declaration that I would say gains traction through the early 19th century and is actually pretty much accepted, I think, at the time of the Gettysburg Address, right? So the southern states do say it stands for rebellion, it stands for the right to revolution, but everyone also seems to concede, mostly that it stands for this principle of equality, and then the Southerners start denying it, which I think is a mistake on their part, both strategically and sort of intellectually. And this is Alexander Stevens in particular saying, oh, it doesn't mean... Yeah, Stevens and Tawney and Dred Scott and and Douglas and the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Right. Um, But I don't think that that's the way it's understood in 1776, and I, I don't think I quite agree that it finesses the issue. I think it leaves it out. So if there is so a piece of legislation or a constitutional provision that definitely answers some question, but people can't agree on how it's going to be answered, 
they finesse it. And they're like, we sort of will let the future argue about this. So you write something vague. Because the Declaration of Independence is not supposed to resolve the question of slavery, I just don't think it's in there at all. I think it's left out. So I think I would, I would differ a little bit with you. Like, is it finesse? Is it left out? I think they didn't, like, put in resources for both sides. I think they just stayed away from the topic, which is why I view this as a reading that comes in, that's imposed from the outside. Now, why did abolitionists do that in the 1820s? Pauline Mayer says it's because they had no other federal resource. And I think that's true. There's no other federal document that is nearly as useful or promising. If you want to say America is an anti-slavery nation, like the 1787 Constitution has a bunch of clearly pro-slavery provisions. So they turn to the Declaration. And then the question is, should we change that? Should we keep on doing this? Of course, we could keep on doing it. But are there maybe some costs? So now that we have Reconstruction and the Gettysburg Address and the Reconstruction Amendments, would we gain something by shifting our focus to those? And I have two things to say about that. One is the Republicans actually did this. So if you look at what the Republican Party platforms say about the Declaration of Independence, in 1856, they're like, it's embodied in the Constitution. In 1860, like, it's embodied in the Constitution. In 1864, they don't mention it, um, possibly because they're fighting a war against independence. But then in 1868, it comes back, but they're not saying the Declaration of Independence is part of the Constitution. They're saying, we applaud all efforts to live up to the principles of the Declaration. So they started out saying, yes, this is what America is committed to, and it's in our Constitution. And then once they got the opportunity, they're like, actually, it wasn't in the Constitution, but we're putting it in now with the 13th and 14th Amendments. And by the it, you mean the Declaration. Again, the Declaration. Yes, yes but so in, this e is in their, each case, like, though, you're saying that we are dedicated to it. Okay, whether we're dedicated to it because it's in the Declaration or we're dedicated to it because it's in the Constitution, they're, they're continually saying that this is what America stands for, and it's expressed right. in our founding documents wherever yes. we happen to be putting it today. Yes, but they're, um, they're revising their understanding and their argumentation about a particular founding document, the Constitution, because they have new resources available. So if you're going to make an anti-slavery argument now, do you rely on the Declaration of Independence? No, of course not, right? You rely on the 13th Amendment because that's a stronger thing to stand on. So are there advantages to shifting our focus away from the Declaration and to, say, the Gettysburg Address? Um, I think so. And here's a very concrete example. We've got different stories of America that we can tell. One is America is born in 1776 in the rebellion against King George. And another is America is born in 1863 when a war for union becomes a war for freedom. And we decide we're not just going to quash this rebellion and restore the status quo. We're going to change America. So which of those stories is better? Well, it depends on what your modern needs are. Um, what are your modern needs? Well, suppose you want to say that January 6th is a bad thing. Suppose you want to say white paramilitaries taking up arms against the national government because they think it's oppressive are bad. Well, there's a version of American history that makes that easy to tell, where you're like Proud Boys, Oath Keepers, Three Percenters. They are like the Klan. They are like the Red Shirts. They are like the White League. They and are like, Kim, John Wilkes Booth. Okay. They are like John Wilkes Booth. Yeah. 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 And if you tell an American story that focuses on that, 
where white paramilitaries fighting the national government are the bad guys, then I think it's pretty easy to say, and January 6th is illegitimate because that's treason and we don't condone treason. Yeah, because I'm thinking that because John Wilkes Booth's associate was supposed to assassinate Andrew Johnson that day, as in hang Mike Pence, you know, on January 6th. So let, let's I'm, I'm going there full bore and saying, OK, John Wilkes Booth. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And so Joe Biden gives a speech in Philadelphia where he says you can't be pro-America and pro-insurrection. And he's giving that speech at Independence Hall, where the Declaration of Independence, which is treason, was signed. So if you're telling a story where your heroes are the Northern, right, Sons of Liberty, Minutemen, white paramilitaries fighting the national government because they think it's oppressive, that makes it a bit harder to get a clear angle on January 6th, I think. And the pine tree appeal to heaven flag is flying at the Capitol on January 6th. And the Gadsden don't tread on me flag is flying at the Capitol on January 6th. And it's also accompanied by the Confederate battle flag, because I think there are a lot of similarities in those ideologies. But a national story that tells us that white paramilitaries fighting the national government are the bad guys is a good one to have now. And you get that from Reconstruction. So I think this leads into another, uh, it's an important point. But I think that uh, that point would be a lot stronger if one believed that the Declaration of Independence somehow provides a justification for secession, you know, or something like that. Yes, um, well, I, which is I really which is something that you does. say, you know, at length, you know, and that in fact the Reconstruction Constitution or the Reconstruction Amendments, if you will, are adopted not in a constitutional way, but in an unconstitutional way. And those are two things that you say, um, that the current, that, you know, that, uh, you know, so, um, and if, if both of those things are wrong, then your that argument is, is weaker. So this is a good time to tell our audience that uh, we're going to address these questions with Professor Roosevelt, um, which go to two things that are very dear to a, Professor Amara's heart, so I anticipate more fireworks. Um, but what I do want to say uh, as we as we sign off of this episode is that you can see why it's worthwhile spending your time reading this very provocative book um, by Professor Roosevelt because you know he takes he's a patriotic American. He takes you know our founding documents seriously. He gives, he's given, he's a very learned, gives it a lot of thought, makes reasoned arguments, nothing crazy. And, um, and after, and in the end, I see his project as how to find a way that we can move forward together with pride in our nation without having to put blinders on, deny the, deny our past, you know, or whatever. Now we might not agree entirely on the specifics of how to achieve that goal, but I think we can agree on the goal. And so any American that, that shares those goals should be reading this book because there's there's quite a lot of food for thought there. And listening to the next episode where Kim and I and Andy are going to talk about secession and the legality of the Reconstruction Amendments and all of that fun stuff. Or to put it another way, is our Constitution adopted, you know, is the 14th Amendment really 
illegal, not there? Is it itself unconstitutional or somehow bogus? Um, uh, and was was the South right to uh, hold the to wave the Declaration of Independence as they said uh, adios? So, thank you very much. So, so uh, any concluding thoughts on 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 that? Other than that, we're going to hit it next time. Well, that sounds like a really exciting conversation, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I, w- I would add in one more thing. I think is I want to talk about uncompensated emancipation and what the 14th Amendment says about that, because I have come to believe that that's really important. So Akhil and I are probably going to disagree about legality a little bit, but I, you know, I'm trying not to put too much weight on that. Um, I'm sort of more interested in is this continuity or is this rupture? Is this a rejection of a prior order? Because I do think you can find textual evidence of that in the 14th Amendment itself. And yes, yeah, so the just compensation issue, uh, compensation of, of slave masters is important. Um, just a heads up for the, so there's uh, the question of secession, the question of the legality of the, the process by which the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment are added to the Constitution, the question of compensation for slaveholders. And Andy, you know, as if actually we gave thought to how all these things fit together, which of course we do, um, audience, um, Section four of the 14th Amendment talks about uh, no compensation for slaveholders. It's also the section that talks about not questioning the national debt, which is connected to stuff that's happening in the news right now. And in um, uh, and maybe even next week, um, um, we're going to have Kim back, but it may not be back to back. Um, we're going to have the great Jack Balkin, uh, one of Kim's uh, professors, mentors, uh, one of the blurbers, I believe, of, of, of Kim's book, come talk to us about Section 4 of the 14th Amendment, which has two related issues to it. Compensation of slave masters, which is prohibited, um, and not questioning the national debt, which is very relevant to um, uh, what, what's happening in the news right now. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And th- thank you very much, Professor Roosevelt. And, and of course, I didn't even ask you if you would appear on this subsequent discussion. So, therefore... <laughs> You have no choice. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. No, I I love it. I'm happy to come back any any time. It's convenient for you. Thank you.